All right, good evening, everybody. Uh, tonight we'll be in Matthew and finish up uh, chapter 13, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. I believe we left off on 30, and so we'll pick up in verse 31 here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we're able to come and spend this time together in song and in prayer, and the kids are getting taught, and the fellowship that takes place, uh, it's all in you, um, by your Holy Spirit, and we pray that uh, your, te- your word tonight would, would get deep into our hearts. As we hear these parables, some of them are hard to understand, and um, we know it's by your Spirit that we're taught, and so we pray for that. We ask for that that you would be our teacher and our guide tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. can't remember the preacher, but he says, you ought not try to teach any of the parables until you've been in the ministry for 30 years. You just read through them and you go on. And uh, I've been in the ministry for quite a while, close to that, if not not 30 or whatever, but still gets a little nerve-wracking on some of these. Um should be easy, it seems like. It should be, if I'm filled with the Spirit, and um, I've read through it several times, and, you know, we've got hindsight as we look at this. This has been written 2,000 years ago, you know. It's still, some of these things are, they're difficult. Um, You don't want to get it wrong, you know. And so when we start off in this verse 31, it's the parable of the mustard seed, and I think it's important to understand that the Mustard seed is the kingdom of God. That's the only part of this parable that is the kingdom of God. The birds aren't. I think that's important to know. The birds rest in the branches of this mustard seed after it grows into tree size, which mustard seeds don't. They grow to sagebrush size. But this one is larger than that. And um, birds have always been a symbol of evil in the scriptures. We know that just recently when Jesus was teaching the parable of the sower, the bird comes and snatches away the word of God out of the heart. And those are, those are it's, it's, it's evil, it says. And so understanding that and knowing those things about scriptures, I think that's the best way to interpret scriptures, to go back and read when these things have come up in the past, how they were interpreted there, you know, and then you could apply them as opposed to guessing. And so that's why I gave you that ahead of time before we read it, so we don't get confused and we'll go off of script. If we're wrong... I'll say to God, hey, I, I just kind of went off what you said before. If we're right, uh, great. You know, but if we guess, I don't want to have to explain to him, well, I just I thought, I, I thought I'd wing it, you know, kind of thing. Um, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs, And becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, birds being evil, and the tree being larger than it should be, and the kingdom of kingdom of God here is represented by the mustard plant. um, Through experience, I understand that that a church grows, and. Sometimes we've seen mega churches, and we've seen, uh, not here at our church necessarily, but um, around, you know, Dallas, Los Angeles, some of these other towns and cities that have mega churches, 
it's easy to understand where a bird might find its nesting place there and go undiscovered and make a home. Um, we don't want to be the kind of church that's always looking for that bird that isn't a part of the kingdom of God, that's sitting there resting in the branches to be a parasite in a sense. Um, because I think he can do a lot of damage. And I think that has to, has to do a lot with the, the wheat and the tares that we read last week. You don't want to do damage to the wheat. It's okay to let the tares grow up. We'll deal with them later. But what, above all, we don't want to do any damage to the wheat. But I can see and understand why he would say this and teach it this way. That birds are going to find their way and they are going to land there. And they're going to nest in its branches. And that's, that's all he shares on that subject. He doesn't expound on that. They don't ask for an interpretation like they do for some of the other parables. And so we're, we're left with that. And so I don't want to go any further with it. Verse 33. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman, a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And so in this case, the leaven is a good thing. Um, the kingdom of Heaven is leaven, and we want leaven, you know, at that point, you want the kingdom of heaven. Where in most cases, leaven is often spoken of as sin in someone's life, and it, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and, and we know that from other passages, whether that's Exodus 12.15, or 12.19, or Matthew 16.6, 6, which we're going to get to here in a couple weeks. Leaven turns into sin, and so you have to read these things carefully. Um, it's a good thing that the kingdom of heaven is spreading throughout this uh, meal. We want that. Verse 34. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. These were secrets, but now they're being understood and being explained in parable form. Sometimes to hide from those that could care less and are there just to spy out the liberty of the crowd, you know, they're not there to listen. They just want to see what's happening out in the sticks with Jesus, you know. But for others, these stories are helping them to understand the kingdom of heaven. They're understanding what it means. Kingdom of heaven, if you just said that, you might think a processional coming into town with a king, with a throne, or a crown, and a throne, and a, and a castle, and the whole thing, you know, or a temple, or whatever it may be. But he's explaining it to it's more of the heart, that the soil is the hearts of men, and the kingdom of heaven is coming to conquer the hearts of men, to conquer more ground, to gain ground. We've been uh, studying, or Jenny's been teaching the kids about World War II and the Korean War and the, the Cold War and the battle uh, with the communists trying to make sure that they don't grab more dirt than we have more dirt. We want free, you know. And, of course, it, it comes to that iron curtain, which we talked about today or they went over today. And that was the dividing line. And uh, it's, it's very much like the kingdom of heaven. Very much like that. The kingdom of heaven is us sharing the gospel with as many people as possible, trying to conquer those hearts, trying to get those people to know and to come into the kingdom of heaven, whereas Satan's doing is just as busy trying to prepare people for where he's going. He wants to take as many of us with him as possible into the pit. And so that battle rages, and that's happening. And so Jesus is explaining that. Satan is very busy preparing people for their eternity with him, in prison with him, in, in, in the lake of fire with him. And the Holy Spirit is very busy preparing people for the kingdom of heaven and for the rapture. And that war continues. There's only two types of people in the world. 
You wouldn't know that by everything that's going on in the news and everything. We'd, we'd think there were so many groups, it, was, it would seem impossible to unite that many different cultures and ethnic backgrounds. It's, it's impossible. We're all being segmented and divided and pushed away. And it's clearly anti-Scripture, all of it. All of it is. There is no more Jew. There is no more Gentile. There is no more male or female. None of those things exist anymore. As far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned, it's saved and unsaved. That's it. Those are the only two divisions. That's the only division in the world right now are saved and unsaved. But of course, the world coming from the unsaved side of things doesn't understand that. They can't understand the things of the Spirit. But as Christians, we ought to understand that and to not fall into those traps that we're being lured into. The conversations, the arguments, the the things that are distracting us from all that matters is the salvation of someone's soul, no matter what they are, who they are. That's all that matters. That's all I'm to be concerned with. That's all my Father in heaven is concerned with. And I need to be about my Father's business. That's all we should be concerned with. So, I'll open my mouth and speak in parables, and I want to explain the secrets of the world, secrets of the, from the, that have been secrets from the foundation of the world. Verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And he, his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. We want to know. Now, that means they didn't understand, but they believed what he said, but they didn't quite comprehend it. Could you explain it to us? Glad to do it. And that's a great prayer for any of us. Anytime you go through Scripture, anytime you're reading on your own or you're hearing something, I, I don't understand that. Ask him. It's a very simple prayer. Jesus, would you help me to understand this better? Would you teach me? Would you explain to me what I'm not seeing? And he will. He answered and said to him, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. Great. The person, the sower, is is the son of man. And the field is the world. Okay, great. The good seeds are sons. They're people. They're not as before when we saw the parable of the sower. That was the word of God. This time it's not. This time it's actual people. And so he's sowing people throughout the world. Believers, sons of God. But that's not all that's being planted But the tares are the sons of the wicked one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So God is busy planting his believers, his sons, his daughters all over the world, and Satan is busy planting his all over the world too. And they're growing up together. We're mixed. There it is. Those are the two types of people in the world, sons of Satan and sons of God. That's it. And when we say sons, we mean people. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Whoa. (laughs) Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Theologically, it's very important to understand what's just happened here, what we've just read. 
There are many people in the church, in Christendom, we call it, all over the world, that believe the, the book of uh, Revelation is allegory, a parable, a story. You understand how that cannot be now? Since the parable itself was the wheat and the tares, the explanation of the parable is the book of Revelation. That's fact. That's actual. That will happen. It's literal. It's not figurative. And so that's important for us to grasp and to hold on to because there are many out there that say, well, yes, yes, yes. The, Re- the book of Revelation is very, very difficult to understand. Very, very, you know, <laughs> puff, puff, puff on my pipe, you know, kind of thing. No, it's not. It's actually going to happen. And the book of Revelation is written chronologically even. I mean, it doesn't get any more easy to understand these things if we just read it and put it in our hearts that it can be understood. What a lie from Satan to say, that can't be understood, don't read that. Of course he doesn't want us to read that. Of course Satan doesn't want us to think we can understand the book of Revelation because that would mean we'd understand his end and his plans, where we're headed, how the battle's going to go. We know the order of things. We know when the rapture's going to happen. We know when the church age is taking place. We know who wins. We know it all. You can't understand that, you know. Of course not. Don't read that. It's absolutely truth. Now, I've got many people in my life that believe this, that believe the, that there is no such place as hell. It's not a genuine place. It's figurative. It's just you're going to live a life of, of hell-like experiences. No. No. This is actual there's a lake of fire, there's gnashing of teeth, there's wailing, there's, there's a furnace, there's, there's a casting, there's a reaping, there's a, there's a reckoning, there's a time when all the opportunities to receive the grace and the mercy and the love of God ends, and this takes place. And Jesus is telling them that, I am here on a rescue mission to save you from this moment right here, when the tares are separated from the wheat, and that's it. To say this isn't real is to diminish Jesus' mission. I'm passionate about it because I'm not all about hellfire. and Boy, we need more pastors that are more hellfire brimstone. I am, but not the way they say it. I'm more thankful for what Christ has done for me because of the hellfire brimstone. That's why we talk about it and we... Don't shy away from hellfire brimstone. I don't relish in it. Any preacher that relishes the fact that hellfire and brimstone are coming and that there's a lake of fire is sick. It does not please the Father that the wicked should perish. It does not please Him. It shouldn't please us ever. So I want to be a hellfire brimstone preacher but only because I'm so grateful that I'm not going there anymore because of what Christ has done. It makes me all the more thankful. I realized that the, the trouble I, w- I was in, it wasn't just, oh, poor me, get me out of my current crisis. So, the, the things I've asked Jesus to save me from on this earth are so small compared to what he actually came to save me from, which is so unbelievable. But fact, thank you, God, for saving us from hell. 
from the lawlessness, from being a son of the devil. Revelation 14, 14 says this, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. That's this. Galatians three twenty seven. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now why those two scriptures? Because there's tares and there's wheat. There's saved and there's unsaved. There's an actual harvest that's coming, and not the kind of harvest that you want to be a part of. There's a separation that takes place. There's an obvious and definite, you are a tear and you are a wheat. There's no, I'm going to work it out in the end. I'm going to just kind of hope for the best. I'm going to, there's a lot of people that are panist. It's all going to pan out kind of thing. Well, it's going to. I mean, it's, it's going to pan out, but it's not going to pan out like you think. Like some people believe in, in universal salvation, like there's no way you can miss it, that there's no way you can not be saved, when that is contrary to what the Bible teaches. Jesus was very concerned about people going to hell. Why would he be concerned about people going to hell if there's no way they can go there? If it's impossible, why would he even take the time to teach these parables and tell people that there's going to come a reckoning where tares are going to be removed from the wheat and burned forever? Please understand this. Why, if I'm going to die on the cross and everybody gets saved, who cares? Just do it already then. You could look at Christ and say, well, then just be quiet and just do it already. Get to the cross, do your job, and then we're all going to be in heaven. I don't know what all fuss is all about. Why do we even worry about living righteously? Why do we even worry about following him or being disciples or spreading the gospel? What difference does it make if it's just kind of a done deal? It's because it's not a done deal. There's a reckoning that takes place. There is a division that takes place. There are wheat and tares. There are goats and sheep. There are saved and unsaved. So important. Verse 44, again... The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's a pretty easy one, I think. John 3.16, that's what that verse means. If you want to read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the world is paid for. The blood of Jesus covers over the sins of the world, but not in a universal salvation kind of way. I bought the field. He paid for it all. But only those a part of the treasure who receive that gift are the ones that are going. That's it. That's a very simple thing to understand. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. But when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Uh, that speaks more of how God feels about us. I mean, if anything, 
I'm often encouraged by when I hear it taught from other pastors that if you were the only person on the earth that ever sinned or that ever received Christ as the Lord, it was worth it to him to die on the cross. He wasn't saying, oh, I hope there's a good return on my investment, one to a hundred or one to a thousand on the cross, you know. One to one is fine with him as long as anybody gets saved. That's how much he loves us. You are a pearl of great price. The church is a pearl of great price. Believers in in total are the pearl of great price. And so he encourages us with that. Now, I'm going to jump a little bit here off of topic because Proverbs 2, Proverbs 3, and Proverbs 8, I'm not going to read them to you, but those are all Proverbs of what it means to grasp wisdom. To grab the wisdom of God is like that pearl, is to be wise, is to be rich, you know. And so I encourage you to read those three Proverbs. Um, It's the whole Proverbs 2, Proverbs 3, and Proverbs 8, okay? And it speaks of that. Um, Or is that Psalms? Proverbs, okay, I made sure I did it right. I wrote them down quick because I was going through this. like, oh, that's great. But for us... As he looks and seeks and finds the girl, he, he sells everything he has to grab us because that's super valuable to him. He also then in Scripture explains to us what should be super valuable to us, and that's his wisdom. It's to know him, to know as much as we can. It's far more valuable than anything out there that we think has value. It's far more valuable than a rare car or a Bitcoin, you know, or whatever it is you wish you had and don't have. The wisdom, which is free to get, it's available anyway, it takes effort, is far more valuable than anything this world has to offer you because it goes on. It's the knowledge of God. It's the knowledge of the one you're going to spend forever with. And so I wrote those down for you to read and to maybe dig into if you've got some time later on this week. Proverbs 2, 3, and 8. Wonderful. Wonderful. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew it to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's twice. Now, that's a a parable and an explanation all in one. Don't get those very often, but he, he gave it. The first part is a picture of what's actually going to happen. I I know I'm driving that point home, but you'll be surprised at how many Christians around you don't believe this. Especially you younger Christians who just kind of think, well, I thought everybody just kind of believed the Bible. They don't. They absolutely don't. There are many churches that don't believe all the Word of God. They just believe some of it, the parts they like. Other parts they're willing to let go. It's uncomfortable. How do you teach something like that? How do you share something? Where's the hope in that? That doesn't sound like my God. There's a lot of reasons they don't embrace all of Scripture. But don't take it for granted that the people you know and walk with and are around that say they're Christians believe what you believe or have read and understood what you just read and understood tonight. So that's why I drive it home. You need to know you're the most loved sheep in the world. God loves you. But you also need to be the best taught sheep. You need to understand the word of God. Because they need to be taught. And if they've grown up in a church that doesn't believe this stuff, I I do not hold my breath that that church is going to suddenly change and all of a sudden start teaching all of it as if it's God's word coming out of his mouth. 
And so you will be the only teacher in their life that will ever actually bring them to a place where they actually question, you mean that's real? Yes, it's absolutely real. Let me show you where. And you can explain it to them. It will be very important. Now, he says we're going to separate these fish. There's good fish, there's bad fish, there's believers, there's unbelievers. They're going to be separated, but the others are going to be thrown away. Matthew 25, verse 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And he describes what's going to happen to the goats. You can read that for the rest. So that's coming up here in Matthew 25. He'll say that. Now, what he's actually talking about, I mean, it's the same story, but he's prophesying. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, the great white throne judgment. Now, if you read all of chapter 20, you'll know the order. A lot of people don't know the order. There's a great tribulation period that takes seven years. This is the end of that great tribulation period. Satan, at the end of that great tribulation period, gets cast and put into a prison, but not forever, only for a thousand years. And for that thousand years, Christ rules and reigns on this earth with us, all described here in chapter 20, but will be released at the end of that thousand years to go ahead and give the people that were born during that time the opportunity who have never known the difference between accepting Christ and having another option. There was no choice. It was just Jesus ruling and reigning. They will now have someone else to follow, and many of them will. And then Christ comes as they all get together and try to battle this Jesus who comes back on the white horse with the sword coming out of his mouth with all of us with him. We're there on white horses. And they lose. They're destroyed by the brightness of his coming. There's not much of a battle there. Then Satan is cast in, and that's when this takes place. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. So the entire creation, the earth that groans to be restored, is absolutely evaporated. We can explain that. You think about atoms and how the protons and the neutrons revolve and, and orbit this, and they're not supposed to. They're negative and positive. They should repel. They should be going away from each other. The fact that they stay together is a mystery. They call it atomic glue. <laughs> it's atomic glue. No, it's the hand of the Lord. He's holding it by his word. And when he's done and lets go of every single atom, this is it. Heaven and earth fled away. There was found no place for them. All the planets, all this, everything, everything we know, every piece of matter we've ever put our hope in. Mars, doesn't matter if you land there or not. We need to find another planet to live on. That's fine. Go there. It won't be there much longer either. That's a hopelessness. It's a, that's a, it's a, it's a fool's errand. I'm all for going there. I think it'd be neat to someone to get on Mars. Why not, right? What a way to go. Not, not opposed to exploring. I love that. But to put hope in it, mm -mm. I don't put my hope there. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were open. And another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. These are actual things. It's not figurative. It's going to happen. So we've got two parables, three parables that explain that. Verse 51, Jesus asked the golden question, and the guys lie. (laughs) Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? And they said, yes, Lord. (laughs) No, they haven't. I don't mean to smile, but I know they haven't. That's like the teacher saying, does everybody understand what we're talking about? There's this. And of course, everybody that wants to get out of class is looking around saying, don't ask any questions. You ask another question, we're stuck here, you know. So everybody's going, yeah, these poor guys. I mean, I would have said the same thing. Jesus, JD, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, got it. No, you know. I don't mean to lie, but I don't want to look stupid. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Hmm. Don't have an explanation for that one, except I'm going to just read it like it reads. As a scribe, as a studier of the Old Testament, you've been instructed You're like someone who has a household. And when someone comes over, you bring out the new and the old. You're bringing out of your treasures. Look, you know, you're combining, you're bringing out the truth and and, and they, they, they go together very well. You know, the Old Testament and the New Testament are not separate gospels. They're not separate anything. It's just a complete understanding of who God is. It represents all of him. It's wonderful, wonderful to read it all. Now, it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, so he's back in Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said. So they start off right. Please follow this. He's teaching, and they're like, wow, which is perfect. But watch them talk themselves out of it. They're going to literally be, not literally, they're going to figuratively be blown away by what he says and impressed and touched even to the point where they're astonished, but they follow up with their astonishment with this. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, And Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended by him. They talked themselves out of it. Ah, so close. This happens in so many different ways. So many different ways in my life. I have heard some of the most beautiful things come out of the most unusual mouths at times. And I'll just say that politely. Because I go through this in my mind. I don't say it out loud. I don't look at them and say, that was rich, but you didn't come up with that. And I don't know where you got that from. And because of everything I know about you, I kind of just throw that out. I discount that. I I don't know. I've been at pastor's conferences where I see Pastor Chuck teaching. Oh, Pastor Chuck. Well, he's got, he's got some history. Now, he's just a man, and he'll never try to 
Uh, he'll never try to exalt himself, but everybody kind of knows. Everybody at Calvary Chapel is like, this is Chuck. You know, it's Pastor Chuck. Can I get your picture with you? He's like, I don't know why, but okay, you know. Very humble man. And then Don McClure will get up, and he's hilarious. And you love him, Pastor Don. Oh, my goodness, he's been around. He'd always make fun of the hippies back in the day because he was the penny loafer preppy guy, and they were the hippies, and he'd always make fun of their long hair. But he was just to say, oh, I love that. And then Craig Smith will stand up, or Craig Dunn. Who's Craig Dunn? And I'm looking at the schedule, the pastor's going, I'm like, who's, who's Craig Dunn? And if there's a, I'm making that up. If there's a Craig Dunn, I apologize. But someone I've never heard of before from Arkansas. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Arkansas. And I talk myself out of it. And I'll sit there and I'll be like, oh, I, guess I'll go to, I guess I'll go to Craig Dunn's teaching. I mean, I'm here. I, I came all the way to California. I may as well listen to all the guys, right? And so I sit down. Oh, my goodness, one of the best teachings I've ever heard, you know. It's happened several times with me, me and my, you know, arrogant, prideful self sitting there. I don't know that I ever talked myself out of it like these guys, but I, it was hard to explain. I don't, I don't know, that was pretty good. That was pretty, did he, I mean, did he hear that from somebody? Did he steal that from a commentator? Did he, you know, did he plagiarize? Did he whatever? Is he truly filled with the Holy Spirit and just blew us away in this teaching, you know? I've had that happen a couple times. Well, Jesus has blown these people away. They've gone to synagogue every Saturday for who knows, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Who knows how old the people are that are sitting there. And here comes Jesus, and they're like, isn't this the carpenter's son? As if that's a low totem pole thing. He's not a scholar. He's blue collar, you know. Isn't his mom's name Mary? Now, do you know why they say that? I'll give you a hint. It says uh, in John chapter 8, verses 40 through 42. Remember, he's in Nazareth. He's where he's grown up. But now you seek to kill me, Jesus says to these people in Nazareth. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this, and you do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. You understand what that means, right? We all get that. We know your mom's loose. We know your mom had a baby out of wedlock. We know where you came from. We know your history. We know your story. He's grown up that way. Mary's grown up with that way. That stigma. So they say, isn't this, isn't his mom Mary? You know, Mary, this, you know the story. And aren't his brothers and sisters here? With We've seen that whole gang. That's a rough crowd. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the story of the brothers and sisters, but for some reason... Jesus was not who they thought he was, but they thought he was his job. They thought he was his mom and dad. They thought he was his family, and he's not. He's of his father in heaven. He's a completely different person. Please understand that. You are the exact same way as this right here. Make no mistake about it. You may be misunderstood by those who have known you in the past, and I, oh, boy, do I regret my past. Although Jesus has never sinned, I still, I did. And so when people from high school friend me on Facebook and they find out I'm some pastor at Calvary Chapel and they tune in, what is he doing up there? And they listen, they say, isn't this that guy that did this, this? Wasn't that his dad? Wasn't this his sister? 
and they're offended. And I'm not that person anymore. I'm born again. I've been filled with the Spirit of God. I've been given the mind of Christ. I've been a, I'm not Him, but I'm changed and transformed from the inside out. I'm a completely different person. I'm not who you think I am. I'm not my job. I'm not my mom and dad. I'm not my family. I'm not the town that I grew up in. I'm not the friends that I was around. I, I love all those people. But that's not who I am anymore. I'm not the same person. I'm different, and so are you. And they'll be offended at you. Nothing you can do about that. You cannot worry and, and help the fact that people are offended by you. A. That's on them. Nothing you can do about it. So Jesus said to them as they're offended at him, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Calls himself a prophet. I'm standing before you in a prophet's role, teaching you the word of God, and you're astonished by it, and yet you discount what I say because you think you know who I am, and you don't. Now, he, could, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, don't close your Bibles. I know what, oh, that's the end. You know, careful. You know, it's, I got seven minutes. We won't use them all, but I'm going to use some of them. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It says in chapter, uh, well, I don't know the chapter. It says in Mark, the same story. Um, I think it's Mark 6. It says that he marveled at their unbelief. In other words, he expected them to believe. He had been trustworthy through all of his ministry. His mighty works proved that what he said was true and from God. That was the evidence from God that what he was saying was absolutely from God with the miracles, and he expected them to, to believe. Here's what I wrote down for this next section here as I go through some cross-references. Belief is expected by God. It's expected. The world should believe in God. I don't have to talk them into it. There's an expectation on this world to look around, just be quiet, be, just close your mouth, and look around at everything around you, and there is enough evidence for you to believe in me. Right there. The heavens, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, creation, everything about it screams, creator, you should believe me. There's an expectation of belief. In Mark chapter 6, verse 6, this is the section I said, same story. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. He was amazed at their unbelief. Mark 16, 14, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He expected these guys to believe because he had told them he was going to rise from the dead. But even though they hadn't seen him yet, they should have and were expected to believe the testimonies of those who said they had. And he rebuked them for it. Yeah, but we didn't see you rise from the dead. We didn't see that empty tomb. I still expect you to believe people when they talk about me like this. You should believe. Very important. Romans 4, verses 19 through 21. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old. In the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. There's a, 
a learning thing for us here in Romans. Speaking of Abraham and the promise that God had given him to have a son, verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. We can waver. He believed, but he didn't waver. He didn't fall into that unbelief. That's up to us. Believing and unbelieving is up to us. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. These are people that are with the living God, but they depart from the living God. And it's an evil heart that does that. It's through unbelief. We need to guard ourselves against it. John 20, verses 26 through 29. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. I want you to believe. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, which my guess is he didn't need to touch and do all the things that he asked him to do, but he did believe. But Jesus follows up with something, and this is where we come in. He finishes that verse 29 with, And he said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. That's us. That's you. There's an expectation. Jesus can see it ahead of time. There are going to be people that are not experiencing what you've experienced. They haven't seen. They didn't run to the tomb. They didn't see the clothes folded neatly down there. They didn't see the angels speaking to them. They didn't grab on to me in my uh, you know, pre-exalted form like Mary Magdalene did. They weren't able to sit at my teachings. They didn't have that fire by the beach with the fish and the wonderful breakfast. They didn't have any of that. None of it. And yet they believed. And that's you. And that's you. You believed. Be encouraged in that. Next week, we're going to pick up in chapter 14, John the Baptist. Um, that's where we'll be. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you keep your word planted in our hearts. We don't want the birds to take it away. Don't let anybody come into our lives to try to steal away what you've planted to to grow and to bear fruit in our lives. They may try to, they may try to tell us it's not true or to try to pull it out of our hearts, but Lord, help us to, help us to be strong, to have deep, deep soil, have our hearts open and prepared for that word and let it bear fruit, to shoo away those birds in our life that try to steal that from us, God. That's our heart. We want you and we want your seed and we want to be, we want to be fruitful for you. Thank you for your word tonight. Bless the kids and the teachers that took the time to prepare their lesson plans and all to share with these kids, to help them to understand through, through, through art and crafts and the teaching and whatever game they came up with maybe, just to drive home the point, to help the kids to understand it the best way they can, your truth. And we pray that those seeds that were planted tonight would bear fruit in those kids' lives. Bless these folks as they go tonight. Lord, thank you for the rain. We needed it. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good night, guys. If you need prayer before you go, please come on up. Be glad to pray with you.